So, as has already been said, myself, Rob, Lisa, Mikey went with us as well. We were at a camp for the last couple days, so our energy is like peaking right now. We have slept maybe a combined total of eight hours since Friday night, but we had a blast. And what was great about it was we got kind of two reminders while we were there. First of all, we were reminded that we are getting old and we no longer have the same kind of energy to deal with middle school and high school students. And the second thing that we learned is we still really enjoy playing with high school students and middle school students. And one of my favorite things that I was reminded of was as we were sitting down for breakfast or any meal, they would ask a question that would cause the kids to kind of debate and have discussion about nothing that was biblical, just something to try to get the kids talking to each other. And this was something I used to do as well, and I would ask silly questions that made kids think and want to argue with each other. It was a blast. And the question that they first asked at breakfast yesterday morning was, does a straw have one hole or two holes? It'll make you think for a second. One of my favorites that we used to debate about was, is water wet? It makes things wet, so then can water be wet? You just got to think about it. The second thing they asked at lunch yesterday was, does Lightning McQueen have car insurance when he gets hurt, or does he have health insurance when he gets hurt? And then my favorite, this is the one we spent way too many hours working on when I was in youth ministry, is a hot dog, a sandwich. This was my favorite debate. We actually sat down one night after dinner trying to figure out if a hot dog is a sandwich. Because if you look at a hot dog, it's got that kind of split bun, hot dog in the middle, and whatever else you put on it. Well, all I'm saying is that looks an awful lot like a Subway sandwich. Am I right? So we started there, and five hours later, we had come up with a whole new system of food theory about how actually a salad is a sandwich because if a lettuce can be... If a lettuce. If lettuce can be a bun for a sandwich, it's a, le- it's a bread replacement, right? If that's a sandwich, then a salad is an open-faced sandwich. And then we figured out that pretty much anything that is filled with something is just ravioli. So donuts filled with jelly is just sweet ravioli. A Pop-Tart is ravioli. You see how stupid this debate is? But you can sit here and just have a fun conversation about it, and we can debate about something that matters absolutely nothing uh, in the end. And I think, actually, sometimes this can be true about the Bible. Sometimes we get kind of confused with what the main point is, and we want to debate about little things. And so today, we're going to deal with one of the biggest controversies in the Bible, and I'm going to talk about how it is important, but it kind of distracts us from the main thing. And, And more importantly than that, we get to see through the book of James, we're walking, I don't think he meant it this way, but we kind of get to see a picture of spiritual maturity forming from James chapter 1 to where we're at in James chapter 2. Because if you think back to very, the, the very first week when we first got started in James chapter 1, we saw that we learned to deal with the, the stresses, the challenges, the uh, temptations in life, all of those things. We learn how to deal with those as Christians and they help us become more spiritually mature the more we rely on Jesus Then when I spoke a couple weeks ago, we learned that with obedience, we have to not just listen to the word, but do it. Last week, we learned not to show favoritism. And you can kind of see a Christian walk going through each and every one of those chapters and sections of scripture that we studied. And today, we get kind of a heart check. There comes a moment 
when you're a Christian and you need to really sit down and evaluate where is your heart. It was a question that my youth minister used to ask all the time. Where's your heart? What are you thinking? Are you in tune with Jesus or are you in tune with the things that you want? And so today we're going to have a heart check and we're also going to deal with the major question of what happens when it seems like the Bible contradicts itself in more places than one. It's something that we in Bible college used to sit around and debate about over and over and over again. We used to talk all the time about, well, when you read all the Gospels, if you read the ending of the Gospels, you'll notice that there's different accounts of what happened when Jesus rises from the dead. Where Who was actually there with the empty tomb? Was it two women? Was one of the apostles there? Was there just another random guy? Like, the, There's questions surrounding what happened after that moment because it seems like there's different accounts. Well, the same thing kind of happens here with James and Paul. One is saying what we'll read today, and Paul seems to say something that's contradictory to James. So before we can dive too far into that, I want you to go ahead. If you haven't scanned the QR code, we'll throw it up behind me, or you scan it over there. I want you to follow along with me in the sermon notes, because we're going to be bouncing around all sorts of scriptures today. It's going to be in James. We're going to go to Matthew. We're going to go to Genesis. We're going to go to Romans. We're going to go back to James. It's going to be all over the place. Yes, if you have not scanned that, do it now, or else you're at liberty to whatever is on the screen. That's how that works. As you're going there, I also want to tell you that this, this debate that we're going to be dealing with is a bit like the debates that happen in our marriages, in our relationships, where a husband, wife, boyfriend, girlfriend seem to disagree with a, an event that takes place. And both of you think you're right in those scenarios. Maybe you've had these fights before where it's almost an all-out war where both sides seem to think they're right. And I want to preface that with how this will fit in with James and Paul. Because most of the times when we are fighting with our spouses or with the people we're in relationship with, most of the time both sides are actually kind of right. Both sides when dealing with these kind of issues have good points, but we're coming at them from two different perspectives. And so I want that to be kind of the preface as we read through James. we got to realize that while James is going to hit one thing, and we, when we read from Paul, these are going to mesh together. We just have to understand perspective. So let's start with James. We'll get to Paul, and then we'll evaluate us and see where we're at. So James chapter 2, verse 14 is where we're going to start. Here's what it says. What good is it, my brothers and sisters, if someone claims to have faith but has no deeds, can such faith save them? So James opens up with a kind of a big, bold question. If you have faith but you have no deeds, can you actually be saved? And when he says deeds, that's not a word we use all the time. That's kind of a biblical word. What he's trying to say is a religious action, basically. Your works, the way you serve people. Can you have faith in a kind of religious work, or can you have one or the other? How does this, how does this work? Do you, do you have faith? Do you have deeds? Do you have faith? No deeds. Deeds? No faith? Can you be saved either way? That's the question he first poses for our readers. So we're trying to answer this question. This is going to be the main point of the day. Actions and faith are tied together. There's a relationship here. We just have to figure out what that is. But the two of them are, in fact, tied together. Actions and faith, faith and deeds, all of these things all come together with what James is trying to get across here. And here is the example that he starts with. It's a beautiful example. He says, suppose a brother or a sister is without clothes and daily food. 
If one of you says to them, go in peace, keep warm and well fed, but does nothing about their physical needs, what good is it? In the same way, faith by itself, if not accompanied by action, is dead. So he uses an illustration here to tell us, if there's someone who is hungry, they're homeless, they don't have their needs provided for, and you do nothing about it, then your faith is meaningless, it's worthless. He'll go on to say in just a moment that your faith is dead. I'll give you another example that kind of ties in that's very similar to this one. Several years ago, I was in Haiti, and there was a guy that we were doing a census around. He comes up to us and lets us know that he's really hungry. Well, we didn't like carry food with us all the time. We were just trying to figure out where people's relationships were with Jesus. And so we asked this guy, does he go to a church nearby? What does he believe? And the only thing that he kept repeating over and over and over again is, I'm hungry. He wouldn't listen to what we had to say about Jesus because he had one basic need in mind. He needed to be fed. He hadn't eaten in a long time, and he looked it. He was really, really skinny. He was clearly malnourished. He needed food. So he wasn't willing to talk about the gospel because he had some needs. And we understand this a little bit because some of us do get a little bit hangry. We, we don't have that need quite, but, I mean, my hangry people know. When you're a little bit hungry, your attention span and your, your anger is, like, the line is very thin, right? We are quick to snap when we're just a little bit hungry. We miss, like, a meal or it's even, like, ten minutes off, and we're a little hangry. That's how that works. If we are not well fed, if our needs are not provided for, then we're usually not willing to listen to anything else. This happens all the time in my family. We will sit around in a living room and lose our focus because we want to eat somewhere, but we can't figure out where that point is. We can't figure out where we're going to be getting food from. And it's, we start to get angry and frustrated with each other because we just need food. And so James is trying to say that if we don't have the basic needs provided for for some people, if someone walks up to you and says, I need food, I'm homeless, whatever it might be, they don't have their needs provided for, and you just look at them and say, Christ be with you, and walk off, we are not doing what James has called us to do, what Jesus has called us to do, which is to provide for those needs. Our faith is nothing if our deeds are not there, if our works are not right alongside of that. And this is true from Jesus as well. This is something that James, again, James is the brother of Jesus. So it's, there's a good chance that as they were working together at some point in their lives, that Jesus talked to James about this specific topic. Because Jesus has a whole teaching about faith and works. In fact, he, he calls it the, the separation of the sheep and the goats. And on one side, he, he sees these people who have both faith and works. They have served people. They have fed people. Uh, they've been servant leaders and everything they say or do. And he says, you all have access to heaven because I know you. But then he looks to the other group of people. He says, I did not know you. And in Matthew chapter 5, verses 42 through 43, here's what he says. For I was hungry, and you gave me nothing to eat. I was thirsty, and you gave me nothing to drink. I was a stranger, and you did not invite me in. I needed clothes, and you did not clothe me. I was sick and in prison, and you did not look after me. So it's not just faith. It is very clear. James talks about it, and Jesus talks about it, that we need to have both faith 
and works in order to get into heaven one day. So eternity rides on our faith and works. It's not just one thing. It is a requirement of both. These things are tied together, not just for everyday life here, but eternally one day we will look at God face to face on the great judgment in the very end, the white throne judgment. He will look to us and he will say, I knew you or I didn't know you. And it will not just be based on our faith in him, but also how we showed it on a daily basis. And he takes us a step further to really give us the heart check in James chapter 2. This is the part where we really have to look within ourselves in verse 18 and 19. He says, but someone will say, you have faith, I have deeds. Show me your faith without deeds, and I will show you my faith by my deeds. You believe that there is one God, even the demons believe that and shudder. I want you to recognize that for a second. What James is trying to say is, if you just have belief in Jesus, and there's nothing in your life that looks like him, there's no actions associated with that, you're no better than Satan or the demons. Because they believe in God, but their actions are the antithesis of what we're supposed to be doing. Even they believe in God. If you go back to when Jesus is tempted in the wilderness, what does Satan do to Jesus in each of his three major temptations? He quotes scripture. In fact, what I love are a couple of quotes from some of our, our great biblical scholars. Some of you have heard of A.W. Tozer. I love what he says about this. He says, the devil is a better theologian than any of us and is a devil still. Think about that for a second. How many times when you find yourself in a situation can you quote a scripture to give yourself encouragement for that situation? Maybe we can Google it and look up something. Maybe we can find it in our Bible app, whatever it might be. But Satan, on the spot, quoted scripture to Jesus to tempt him to stumble. How much better does even Satan know our Bibles than we do? How much better or, or how much more does Satan even believe that God exists than we do? Or as Charles Mitten puts it, it's a good thing to possess an accurate theology, but it is unsatisfactory unless that good theology also possesses us. I love those quotes because it really makes us look a little bit deeper into our hearts. Do we just simply come to church, go to small group, whatever it might be, because we believe in Jesus? Or is there actually something to back up what we have? Is there actual fruit in our lives that are evidence of our faith in Jesus? You see, our deeds separate us from everyone else. There's tons of people in our world that believe that there is a God. They not, may not even believe that it's our God, but they believe that there is a God. What makes us different from them is how we act on it. Our faith is there, but true faith comes out based on our actions and our deeds. But here's where we get into the nitty-gritty. Let me read this for you. We're going to go back and forth now between James and Paul. Here's what James says and starts the entire debate, one of the biggest debates in all, all of Scripture. James chapter 2, verse 20. You foolish person, do you want evidence that faith without deeds is useless? Was not our father Abraham considered righteous for what he did when he offered his son Isaac on the altar? You see that his faith and his actions were working together, 
and his faith was made complete by what he did. And the scripture was fulfilled that says, Abraham believed God, and it was credited to him as righteousness. He was called God's friend. You see that a person is considered righteous by what they do and not by faith alone. And so what James is talking about is going all the way back to Genesis chapter 15, when God promises to Abraham that he's going to have a kid. Now, Abraham is old, but instead of questioning God, he has faith in God. And so if you were to go back all the way to Genesis 15, verse 6, it says, it was quoted in the scripture, Abraham believed the Lord and he credited it to him as righteousness. That verse in scripture is where all the debate comes from. Because the way James reads that is, in this moment, he is saved not just by his faith, but the actions he takes as a result of it. Paul sees this very differently. Let me read for you what Paul says in Romans chapter 4. This is starting verse 1 of chapter 4. What then shall we say that Abraham, our forefather, according to the flesh, discovered in this matter? If in fact Abraham was justified by works, he had something to boast about, but not before God. What does Scripture say? Here's this quote again. Abraham believed God, and it was credited to him as righteousness. Now to the one who works... Wages are not credited as a gift, but as an obligation. However, to the one who does not work, but trusts God, who justifies the ungodly, their faith is credited as righteousness. And so we have this this dichotomy in front of us, or so it seems. James is saying that if you have faith but no works, your faith is useless, and therefore you will not be saved. On the other hand, we have Paul who says it is your faith alone that saves you and your works ultimately cannot achieve what you are hoping that it will. How do we synthesize these two things together? Very, very carefully because we can quickly get into down a, a dark path where we just debate about this topic for a long period of time. But here's where we start. The first thing we need to know is the Bible is written by specific people writing to other specific people. This was written for a purpose, right? James had a specific audience in mind and had lived a full life. He's the brother of Jesus, so he knew Jesus very, very well. He had all of his life experience pouring into the book of James and was trying to write a letter to a very specific audience. In the same way, Paul lived his life, had his experience with Jesus on the road to Damascus, And when he wrote the book of Romans, he was writing to a very specific audience. So that's the first thing we have to keep in mind. The audience is key in what they're trying to achieve. The second thing is we second thing, the second thing that we have to understand is this idea of justification. This is a big biblical word. You hear sanctification, justification, all this stuff. The one thing I want you to know about sanctification is this. I'm going to define it for you. It is the process through which we are made righteousness. In other words, it is a change in status. So when we are uh, our sinful selves, we have this status of sinner, broken, in need of a Savior. When we accept Jesus as the Lord and Savior of our life, we are justified. We become a new creation. We are made righteous. So you go back to the example of Abraham. Abraham was in a sinful state. God tells him something, he believes God, and he is credited as righteousness. His status changed from sinful to righteous. 
So how do we synthesize all this together now? Let's bring it together, let's mesh it together, let's mold it together, and show how all of this is tied. It's all about two major questions. When am I justified? And how am I justified? When we answer those two questions, suddenly all of this comes together, and the debate kind of goes away. You see, Paul is trying to tell us the point at which we are justified is when we have faith in Jesus. Because he is writing to an audience that is full of Jewish people. And here's what you need to know about Jewish people. They are obsessed with a thing called Torah. Torah is the law. If you go back and read out of that memorized. And they were trying to follow a very specific system of laws. And for them, their entire lives have been lived to a point where in order to get to heaven, they had to follow those laws. So for them, deeds and works meant following the law, and that is what saved them. But what Paul is trying to say is you can live by Torah all you want. But how you are saved is not by that system of works. Instead, you are saved because God makes you righteous. And when you place your faith in him, that is when and how you are saved. James is slightly different. James is dealing with an audience that is purely Christian. They probably had some Jewish background. But what he is trying to tell them is once you have placed your faith in Jesus, you know that you are saved when... You start to show those works, those fruits of the Spirit. It's an evidence more so than it is the how, if that makes sense. So when and how we are saved is looked at at two different viewpoints from Paul and James. They're saying the same thing, just in two different ways. What we are supposed to take away then from the synthesis of this material is that faith and deeds are in fact inseparable. But we can't get confused with what works and deeds are. We are justified by God. Nothing we specifically do will change that. You can try to be righteous. You can try to be sinless your entire life. But that will not be what saves you. It is placing your faith in him. And a true faith will come about through your works and through your deeds. I define it like this. If you were with us probably a little over a year ago, I gave you a definition for faith. Faith is belief in action. That's the most simple way to put faith. True faith is belief in action. And that's exactly what James is trying to say. If you have true faith, it will stir in your heart for you to do something. And it happens in a lot of different ways in our life. But James puts it very clearly in chapter 2, verse 26. As the body without spirit is dead, so faith without deeds is dead. These two are completely tied together with how we live our lives. So what you've got to do, look within yourself. You've got to ask yourself, do you have true faith? This is the heart check. Are there things in your life that you can see? Are there fruits where you can see that you have faith in Jesus or not? If all you do is show up to church on Sunday and your Monday through Saturday doesn't look any different, What's your faith like? Where are you at? I know this is something, like I said, my youth minister tried to check us on constantly. Do you have faith? If we answered yes, then he would ask us, what are you doing about it? Are you serving people? Are you providing for the, those people who are in need? I think 1 Corinthians 13 puts it the best. If you want to know whether you have true faith or not, 
recognize what 1 Corinthians chapter 13 says. Verse 1, if I speak in tongues of men or angels but do not have love, I am only a resounding gong or a clanging cymbal. If I have the gift of prophecy and I can fathom all mysteries and all knowledge and I have faith that can move mountains but I do not have love, then I am nothing. If I give all I possess to the poor and give over my body to hardship that I may boast but I do not have love, I gain nothing. So notice 1 Corinthians isolates this even more. It's not just about feeding the homeless. It's not just about uh, providing shelter for people. It's about how we love people on a daily basis. When the Spirit moves you to show love to your family members, to your coworkers, to your neighbors, to the guy you come in contact with on the street, wherever that might be, the key is love. In fact, we're told over and over again, the way that people will know that we are from Jesus is by our love. So if you want to know whether you have true faith, how good are you at loving people? Pretty simple. Our faith should be abundant. It should be clear, almost over the top with how we love people. That's how we know we have true faith. It's a very biblical concept. Where's your fruit, is what the Bible often says. If you have a good tree that's sprouting, you know that it's a good tree, not by how tall it is, not by how thick the tree is. You judge it by its fruit. If an apple tree doesn't grow apples, it's not a good tree. If a a coconut tree doesn't grow coconuts, it's not a good tree. Looks good because you're at the beach, still not a good tree. A Christian who professes their faith in Jesus but has no fruit, has no love, doesn't show it on a regular basis. Are they a Christian at all? That's the tough question that each and every one of us has to answer when evaluating our own personal faith. Is your belief like that of Satan and the demons where all you have is belief that God exists? Or does it go beyond that? Do you move when the Spirit calls you to move? That's something we've talked about over and over and over again. The Holy Spirit sometimes will give you a nudge to do something, and how quickly are you to follow through with that? I'll give you an example that happened, and I didn't even realize what was going on at the time. Uh, Rob used this illustration this weekend. And before I tell you this story, I want to make sure that you guys know, I'm not trying to, like, boast about myself in any way, shape, or form. But this was a very personal application for me, And so I wanted to show you guys just the way that the Spirit has moved in my life. And when I just faithfully followed what the Spirit was nudging me to do, and it turned out to be something major, and I really had no clue about it until this weekend. About, I want to say it was like two or three months ago, we were having a strange Sunday, not too different from this one, where it seemed like nothing was working when we got here. And Mikey laughs because he knows upstairs exactly what we were going through. And Rob, I think, was having a a tough day. It was just odd because nothing was happening the way we wanted it to. And what usually happens, I'll give you a a peek behind the scenes, is as we're walking out this way, Rob and I usually cross paths at some point. Either he's coming out to preach and I'm going that way to come back around, check on everything, make sure everything's working. Or we'll do the opposite. I'll preach, he'll come out. We'll, We'll give a little fist bump, something like that. And this one Sunday, I don't know what it was. I think I came out here, I welcomed you guys, told you about our like special coffee mug that you need to grab. And I walked off stage and I'm walking around and something just, 
something was moving in me. And I could just feel the Holy Spirit saying to me, you need to go pray for Rob before he preaches today. And so as I come around this back corner, I see Rob, and he's sitting uh, at his stand with his tablet, trying to get ready for his message. And I just walked up to him, and I said, hey, I feel like I'm supposed to pray for you today before you go out there. So no, no just fist bump, no just attaboy. So like, all right, I need to pray for you today. So we sit down, we pray, and I just felt led to pray for peace in his life, that he would lose his kind of distractions for the day, that the Spirit would overtake him, and that he would show the fruits of the Spirit uh, as he was preaching that day. And then I walked off and I did my normal thing and kept living my life, as we always have on Sunday mornings and throughout the week on a regular basis. But then I found out this weekend that on that Sunday, it wasn't just weird because things weren't working, but Rob actually had a slight traumatic experience while he was backstage. Like, he had this moment where uh, I think the air conditioning maybe wasn't working or something, and it was really uh, hot and humid back here, and he had a hard time breathing, and he started to have a little panic attack because he remembered what happened with his wife when she had COVID. And so right before I had walked around the corner, he was coming out of a panic attack, and right about there, I felt the Holy Spirit tell me to pray for him. That's what it looks like to have faith and to actually do something about it when you feel the Spirit nudging. Now, I'm, I'm not saying it's because I'm some holy being that's amazing, but sometimes when the Spirit's telling you to do something, it's not because it's for you. It's because somebody is in need, and it's time for you to show deeds or works and step out in faith. And not just faith in knowing that God is there, but faith that you feel like you need to do something about it. That's what James is talking about. That's what Paul is talking about. Our faith that saves us is when the Holy Spirit moves us and we just take the step. Let me pray for you guys today. Lord, I am just grateful that you love us imperfect beings, that you are willing to make us righteous, to one day live with you eternally. I'm so grateful that you use us as your instruments on a daily basis. I know it's probably frustrating for you. It's probably difficult to use such imperfect people, such imperfect tools. But you love us in, in spite of our flaws, in spite of our unwillingness to follow you sometimes. Lord, I pray for our, our church, our entire congregation, our leadership, that we would just be completely in tune with your, your Holy Spirit, and that when you tell us to move, we jump. We don't just take a step of faith, we take a leap of faith, knowing full and well that you have prepared the way that you are telling us to do something for a reason, and that our faith would be so true that we not just have a mustard seed that moves mountains, but we have a faith that would move the hearts of people as your Holy Spirit moves through them. Lord, forgive us when we fall short, when we don't take that step, and just keep pushing us. Lord, we love you. It's in your son Jesus' name that we pray. Amen.